I was at Lowe's over the weekend. Uh, hard to find a parking place. I wonder why is everybody at Lowe's? Well, it wasn't that everybody was at Lowe's. It's that there wasn't any parking place. Uh, it's that springtime event when the Lowe's parking lot fills up with bags of mulch and um, fertilizer and seed and all kinds of things. They're just getting ready. And if, if you went on past that and you went to the um, the garden center right now, it's an empty space. It's just everything has been, the winter stuff is all gone. It's just empty, empty shelves. And they're waiting, which, again, I would guess in the next week or so, uh, Bonnie Plants, I guess is the name of the place, is going to come right in there and fill them up. Thousands of plants, flowers, uh, vegetables, fruit, uh, fruit trees, all kinds of stuff is going to come into there. And uh, dutifully, the community will buy it all up. All right, they hardly have any left when they get done with all that stuff. They're going to sell them all those plants to people, people with great hopes, visions of beautiful gardens, fruit, vegetables. I mean, they've seen pictures of them, right? Maybe you don't get those catalogs, but since, I mean, certain things, uh, I get those catalogs where Johnny Seed says, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful carrot. That's the one I grew, but this is the one that it had, you know, so right there. See, all these hopes, um, they're, they're good. If we ran around in June and started hunting for those plants, I'm afraid we would find that, I mean, if we could trace them all down, some of them would be blooming well because some people know what to do with them. Then there's the rest of us. And there would be planted there. As soon as you plant them, all the, the just that hope that somehow it's just going to take care of itself and turn beautiful is thwarted by the harsh reality that out there there are problems. Anybody that's ever done gardening, you know about things called weeds. All right? Let me just mention some of the Greenville weeds. Bermuda grass, impossible. All right? Nut sedge, oh, you can't get rid of it. Once you've got it, you might as well try to grow it for a garden or for the, make that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to win. It just seems that way. And you go on down the line with all those different different weeds are out there, crabgrass, all the kinds of grass that grow up in the stuff. Then on top of that, you've got these little things called aphids. And you've got hornworms. And you've got uh, you got bean beetles, you've got cucumber beetles, you've got all kinds there's there's so many beetles. You've got all the stuff eating on them. So you got weeds growing underneath them, you've got things eating on them. Then you go out one day and you've got powdery mildew. Good old, beautiful flower in the book, but it's all powdery mildew in my book. So, anyway, long story short, you're going, you're going, they're between, somewhere between the vision and the reality, uh, problems come up. Now, if those problems were insurmountable, by this point in history, they wouldn't be able to sell you the flowers, right? They, they wouldn't be able to pull that over on you again. It's possible to overcome, but that's exactly what you have to do. You have to overcome. And anybody that's grown a garden knows if you're going to make it beautiful, and it can be made beautiful, you have to work. You have to, to deal with the problems. Okay, now what does that have to do with where we're at? Last week we thought about the goal of God in, in sanctification. 
When he sets a person apart, what does he want? What is what's it going to look like if that person actually arrives at the sanctified place? And we said there were two things that are going to characterize that man. The two things that are going to characterize that person who is sanctified, it's the goal that God has in mind, are the fulfillment of the law in that he loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, and he loves other people. He loves his neighbor as himself. That's the law. That's the summation of the law. And that's what he wants to fulfill in any person that he's sanctifying. We could get thrilled by that and we could come to a conclusion that, hey, well, that's wonderful, isn't that? Go out of here real enthused. But once you leave here, yeah, what we have on the second point on the the notes there, you you hit a harsh reality. I remember when, again, it, it depends on when you were converted, what what stage of your life you were in. If it happened very early, you probably didn't go quite through this experience, but I was converted at 21 years of age. I'd been in the world for a while, so I knew all about what that was like, and I knew I was in bondage. I didn't know that. And the day that I came to Christ, I, I don't know that I was even sure that anything had happened. I committed to him, and you know, I knew I was torn up about it, and I did this. But boy, the next day, it was wonderful. I will say it was one of the best days I've had in my life. When suddenly God confirmed to me that he had done a new thing, okay? And that's just what he did for me because I was kind of a skeptic. So, hey, here it is. New life is there. And for a short period of time, I had real capacity. I thought, boy, this is is the abundant life they were talking about. Good, good, good. Because I could do what I wanted to do as far as serving God. I was uh, acting righteously after (laughs) fashion for my own puny little mind's viewpoint. But nevertheless, it was a lot better than it used to be, all right? But in time, I began to realize that there's a problem here. There's a problem here. So on the one side, I had the reality, and this is true for every redeemed person, there is the reality of a new life that's being manifested, the desire to glorify God, the desire to go this direction. But on the other side, I feel that there's still something there which is in the way. I began to search at that time, and that's one of the reasons I came to the Evangelical Institute, because I wanted to find out the path to get rid of all this. All right. And I had a dream. This was my dream, is to find out from the Word of God how I could get out of this fight. How could I appropriate what God had provided for me so that it wouldn't be weeds and bugs in, in a spiritual sense? After 50 years of looking for that, I'll, I will tell you this. As far as I can see from the Word of God, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There is no way to escape the pressure that's over here. That is completely escaping. To get to a place where it's not overcoming. And I think it's confirmed by the way the Lord describes those who who make it to the end in the book of Revelation as he talks to those churches, the seven different churches, and tells them where they're at and what they need to do. But then he says at the end to each one of them, but to those who overcome, I will grant. So it's overcomers. I didn't like that word. I was hoping for a, you know, down on the roller coaster and just go to the end. But it's not there. I remember when Raleigh Reasoner, um, about 20 years ago, I asked him to come here because he was getting towards the end of his ministry time. And I said, Mr. Reasoner, I want you to come and speak to students and tell them what you've learned because you've obviously learned how to walk with God. And I remember one of his, his sessions, he read a poem. I didn't memorize the poem. I didn't write it down. But the poem basically was a person talking about a trip, and they said, is the trip going to be uphill the whole way? (laughs) And um, 
They tell him, yeah, it's uphill the whole way. And then she, he says, uh, is it going to take all day? Yeah, it's going to take all day. And we just, it's a, a parable on what the Christian life is like. It's an uphill battle the whole way. It's always uphill because you're always fighting. But you're all, it's going to take you your whole life. You're never going to get to the place where you've reached it. At least I don't see any indication of that in the Word of God. So the question comes, how are we going to experience this? Is there a salvation? You remember in the book of Romans, uh, a question is asked at one point when a writer said, or the, Paul asked this, and he's quoting somebody else, he's, he's suggesting somebody else said this, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? And uh, that is very often, and it probably is the most, the biggest reason why that's there is there are some people out there who want to say that, hey, we're just, now that we're freed, we're justified, what's the point of even trying to be righteous? But I wonder if there isn't another element in that, shall we continue in sin? They're kind of like the Romans 7, end of Romans 7, there's a terrible passage there where Paul describes a man which, again, we're talking about him in just a moment, where theologians just don't even know what to do with this guy. He doesn't seem to fit. But he finally comes to the conclusion after he has tried to do the right thing, oh, wretch that I am, who shall deliver me? And I wonder if sometimes that desire to say, hey, can, let's just continue in sin isn't just throwing in the towel and saying, you know what, I fought and I fought and I fought and I don't want to fight anymore. All right? Now, there is a path of victory, right? and that's what we want to think about tonight. God has done certain things to make it possible for us to overcome our opposition. The opposition comes from various features. There is an opposition which comes from without. We call it the world. That world is governed by a devil, and that's on the outside. But it is interesting in the New Testament, the, although there are means of dealing with those problems, the focus is not on the world around you or on even the devil and his attempts to tempt you. The focus is on you and the problem you have within and how God has dealt with that problem within. And that's what we want to think about tonight. If we're going to achieve a place where we love the Lord our God and where we love other people, what is the path to that? And I want to think about that. I want to look at the book of Romans and, and survey that path. All right, the path of sanctification. All right, we've seen the goal of sanctification you see what the problem is. Now, what is that path? What's the path? Now, in describing this, this is in Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to start. Um, Paul describes, first of all, what God has done for us. And it's always important to note this. That our salvation is never just a matter of just do the right thing. It is a, it's coming to God and receiving from him what he has done for us. It is taking hold of what God has, has um, first done. Faith is always a response. We saw faith is a response to where God is and what God has done. And so here is Paul describing what God has done. Now, in dealing with the guilt of our sin, he says he placed it on Jesus Christ and he paid the price for that so that it is gone. It is out of the picture. All right? Now, when that takes place, we don't feel that. It's very important here. We don't feel that. I don't feel that God is 
has taken away that sin. I know it's true because the Word of God says so. And because I've come and I've entrusted myself to the Lord, he promised to do what he'll do, and he's proved himself faithful. And so it is not a matter of feeling that that's so. It's a matter of knowing it's so, and we respond to it. In a similar way, God has made provision for the problem which is within me. And he did it at the same time. At the same time that he was dealing with the guilt of sin... By pouring that guilt out on Jesus, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again. At the same time he was doing that, he did something else. What he did was he united me, and he united you. He united every person that, that ever would commit themselves into the hands of Jesus Christ for salvation. He united them to himself. Theologians have a hard time describing exactly what that means, but it means this. We are in some kind of a close union, however we picture it. In heaven, we'll probably understand how that worked. But we have been placed into Jesus Christ in such a way that his experience becomes our experience. Right? This, is, this is real crucial. If you don't get hold of that, then your Christian life is going to be Thankful that you're justified, and now I'll try to do the best I can. And you've got a whole lot more working for you than the best you can. So here's what he did. He united me to Jesus Christ. He united me to Jesus Christ because he saw, and I'll just use myself there as the picture, but you're in the same, in the same boat. He saw that the man, Art Nuremberg, was completely ruined. It was a worthless thing. It was of no value anymore. It had been created for a purpose, but that purpose was so thoroughly discarded from my life and so thoroughly ruined in my experience that he could not do anything with it. And so what did he do? He attached it to Jesus. And Jesus Christ went to a cross and he died. And Paul says this, that in the fact that he died, I died. Wonderful. The old man that was so worthless is gone. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Wonderful truth. He's gone. He calls him the man of old. Everything I was up to that point, it's gone. And the person is gone. But that's not all he did. Right? He died. He was buried. And he was raised again. And when he was raised again, a new man came into existence. A new Art Nuremberg, a new person. A new creation that God has brought to pass. And that person is united to Christ, sharing his resurrection life. All right? Let's read it. Let's read about that. Just so we know that I'm not making this up, that it is the word of God, because that's what the spirit of God wants to use. Verse Chapter 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? He's spoken about the value of grace. May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, as we just mentioned, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be, and that done away with actually should be more along the lines of should lose its power. 
should just lose its capacity to hold. All right, should be done away with is the way it's in the New American Standards. We'll read that. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, Paul says this is what actually happened to us. This is what God has done for us. And the entirety of our salvation, that is our sanctification, rests on that work. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our Savior from the guilt of sin. He is also our Savior from the power of sin. And it's in this action that he's done it. How shall we respond? That's what we want to spend after the evening tonight thinking about how should we respond? Because in the chapter, in this chapter, and then on through to chapter 8, he is going to describe the Christian life as it actually works out. This is the, he's going to sketch it out for us. What should I do in light of that? The first thing he says that I should do in light of that is count it so. Right, that's the first thing on, on your list. You count this so. What do I count so? All right, what do I believe? Because this is the way it works. Faith has to take hold of what God has said. Faith has to respond and take action where God says action. So when God presents to us a truth, it, the response of faith is to believe God on that. Right? It's to believe God on that. And he says that I have died, that I, was, I died with Christ, and I've been raised to newness of life. Now, what he says to do in verse 11, probably a pretty well-known verse, but I don't know if people do it. Even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking about what you are to now believe yourself to be. In the same sense that I believe that Jesus would clear the guilt of my sin when I entrusted myself to him, even though I can't feel that to be so, I have to do this same thing with regard to this truth. God has done something for you. He's done something for every one of us. If we have come and committed ourselves to Christ, he has dealt with our past and released us from the power of sin. You could put it this way in a picture. Again, this is just one way to, to picture it. Before I was converted, I was in a, a jail cell. A jail cell. I didn't even know it was a jail cell. I liked it in there. Every once in a while I tried to get out, but I couldn't, and okay, I'll stick in my jail cell. Devil had me, he had me roped in there. When I was converted, God came, and that's what he's putting here, and he unlocked the door to that cell, and he opened it up. See, before I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave because I was locked in. But now the door's open. All right, now the door's open. Now, I can stay in the cell if I want to, or I can leave in one sense. All right, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but I can stay there, but I don't have to stay there. You know, John Wesley or Charles Wesley's song, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night bound in it. That's what his, his way he pictured it. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. He knew his chains were off. And what did he do? 
I rose, took off, and followed you. That's not exactly the way he said it, but, but it's close enough for us. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. All right? I did it. The door is, is open, but if I don't count on that, will I feel it to be so? Probably not. And it, here's where a problem comes, and I want to just note it. In chapter 7, we have that guy at the end of the, the chapter there that people debate, who is he and what is he doing? But I'll tell you one thing in that passage. If you look through there, I'll tell you this much about him. He never counts that to be so. In fact, he says something in that particular passage, which is very disturbing. He says, I am a slave of sin. God says, you're not a slave of sin. And that man is in trouble because he's not counting on the very first thing I have to do is count on the fact that I am set free. All right? You're dead to sin, but here's the other side of it. You are alive to God. And although it doesn't immediately hit us this way, we wouldn't think of this as being immediate consequences, but if you put it in the whole context, if we read all of chapter 6 and chapter 7, you find that what Paul's talking about when he says you're alive to God is you are now opened up to a place where you can serve God. To be alive to God is to be the servant of God. He's going to move to that in just a moment. I want you to note that because it's terribly important to our concept of how we, how we get past sin. See, sometimes we want to have a righteousness for the sake of being righteous, right? And God isn't interested in that. That's what we talked about last week. What is his purpose? We should love God and we should love people. See, God isn't in the process. Sanctification isn't a process of God polishing ornaments to put on display. That's what Pharisees thought. They get put on display. He's in the process of preparing instruments to use. Instruments of righteousness. People who can be used to help other people. Now, God could do things on his own, but it's part of the grace of God that he has chosen to incorporate us into his plan in such a way that we will be able to actually perform the purpose of God in such a way that people are changed. That should help us because sometimes we get in a sense that, you know, we're such little creatures and we're so unimportant on the rest of it. I just, just think about it for a moment. What would it mean to you if you got to heaven and knew that there was a person who was saved from an eternity in hell because you talked to him? If that was the entire fruitfulness of your life, that would be something to give thanks for. That you had come alongside a brother who was ready to give it up, to turn aside, and you were able to, in some sense, come alongside and encourage him and cause him to keep on going. You were able to speak to a pastor who was ready to desert the ministry. He just had had enough. And sometimes the ministry can become so overwhelming that men wonder whether, what is the point? Which, why am I going on? And you were able to come alongside. You see, we don't have to do great works to do powerful works. But here's the wonderful part. God doesn't do this all by himself. He has purposed 
to use people who have been redeemed for that. That's why the sanctification is taking place. Not so you can feel better about yourself. Not so you people can say, wow, what a holy person that is. So that you can become an instrument in his hands to perform his work. That's why we're doing all this. And there's a wonderful, wonderful feature to that. And that's what comes up next. The first thing is you have to think correctly. And... The, the thought in that verse is this, that you come to a place where you realize this so, and then you keep with that the rest of your life. You keep, you keep going on this line. I want to suggest to you that it's, it's worthwhile that until that becomes fixed in your heart that this is the reality, I would go back every day and repeat it to yourself. Just say it. Go and This is the word of God. Why? Because it's what's true. And again, the man in Romans chapter 7 doesn't seem to see that. All he can see is the worthlessness of his, of his flesh and the rest of it. And the truth is that we're as nasty as he's describing. Right? We are that nasty. If you start getting caught up with you, it's going to go... And you're going to feel very much like it is true that you're... you're controlled by sin and it's it's completely overwhelming you but it's not true and the first step is to believe what god said and to affirm it that's that's a that's an act of faith if you don't do that then you can't go into the next step you're alive to god so what do you do here is the action we take let's go on down to the next verse verse 12 therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. How about that one? Here's what he says to do. And again, this is going to follows very closely the same kind of a thought, that there should come a time when you present yourself, you come and say, Lord, here it is. Here it is. Now, I like to do this literally, all right? It's just, you can, however you, these are the eyes that have sinned in the past. They're yours now. They're yours for your purposes. Those same eyes that I use for those purposes can be used to study the Word of God, to take it into my heart. These are the hands that I've used to do wrong things. They're yours now. And that's what he's saying here. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to make this just about me. This is what we should, we're presenting ourselves to God. But it's not just here I am. It's now they are your instruments. This mind which has thought things which shouldn't have been thought and, and desired things which shouldn't have been desired, which has purposed harm to the human beings around me, is now yours to control. I'm putting it in your hands I want to ask you tonight, this is one of the, the things we do at the very beginning of the school year for all the students is ask them to face this. Have you ever really done that? Now, here's, here's what you have to note. If you do it, you lose control of your time and your life. This is part of Christianity. Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the book of Romans as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Bond serve, but we don't. But he's a slave. I belong to him. It's up to him what happens in my life. I belong to him. 
Now, here's the thing. If you have said that, you don't belong to you. This is why we have problems with that, right? That's why that thing we talked about last week, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and loving others as ourselves is an act of faith if we're going to do that because you are going to have to be able to say that I believe that this is where life is and not in having things and not in enjoying things and not in having freedom to do what I want to do. Right? That's why Paul, or the Lord, he was very clear on this. If you want to come after me, you want, you want to learn from me? You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You're going to have to do it. Why? Because I can't teach you if you don't. Because the very heart, the, the greatness, we saw it last week, the greatness of the glory of God is that the one who had supreme rights gave them all up so that ones who had offended him could be made new. That though he was rich, he became poor. That we through that poverty might become rich people. And if I am going to be sanctified, if I'm going to be used, I have to present it. Hands, eyes, mind, mouth, all those things to be put in his, in his place. Have you done that? And then I would say this, that once you do it, you better do it every day. You better repeat that. You better renew your... I don't know how many times I've had to say it again. You know, Lord, I, I, I'm back here. I told you at the beginning I was going to serve you the whole way. Let's get it. Let's start over again to try this one more time. I'm grateful for Mr. Carroll's word. The Christian life is an experience of multiplied new beginnings. We started all over again. But it has to happen. I have to present myself. That's the second point in sanctification. And when you're presenting yourself to him, remember, you're presenting yourself to God himself. And that becomes very important. And that we get to our third step here. And on that paper, it says this. Don't go to the law. <laughs> Do not go to the law. Do not go there. If you go to the end of the book, or that chapter 7, you will note that the man in that section is, is fighting between himself and a law. All right? He finally finishes, even after he says that God's going to, the Lord's going to deliver me from this. says, there, but here's the problem. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my body, I serve sin. He's wrong on that first count. Let me just go over this because it's an extremely important one. Law could not save you from the guilt of your sin. You could not justify yourself by keeping the law. Law cannot sanctify you. It does not have the capacity. The reason it does not have the capacity is you have a problem which it can't answer. It can tell you where to go. It can tell you what to do. It can tell you how great God is and how good you should be. How wonderful it would be if you were kind, if you were this, all the rest of it. But when you find out that you're not along that line, it can do nothing to help you. Nothing. We could do, I guess I shout. Yes, I did. I did. Because it's amazing how many Christians think that after you've been justified, now the path to sanctification is find out what the law says and do it. Try it. You end up in Romans 7. You're going to end up hating yourself for the fact that you don't get it done. 
Because you have no capacity in yourself to get this done, God has to enable you. How is he going to do that? You can't go to the law. Now, at the beginning of the book of chapter 7, yeah, we've got enough time to do this. At the beginning of chapter 7, Paul has an interesting picture. He's talking about the law, and he's trying to picture how we are delivered from that law. And he says that it's kind of like a, uh, a woman whose husband dies. And then he turns around and changes the picture. It's, it's, it is a little strange there, but he says that, in essence, this is the point. If your spouse dies, you're no longer married. And they have no right over you because that, that was the situation. But in the picture, he says this. When Jesus died, you died with him. Right? We all died with him. He says one of the things that happened, you died to sin. But here's another one that happens. He's getting it all done in one action at the cross. He says the other action is this. You were, you died to the one you were married to before, and that's the law. The one that told you what was wrong but wouldn't help you get it right, you died to it. All right? All right. Now, in this case, you're dead now. That, that kind of messes up the picture, doesn't it? But now you're going to come back to life. Whoop. Come back to life. And you're united to the Lord Jesus Christ. He now takes that place that the law had, right? And what he argues is this, that that is now out of the picture. Don't listen to its call. Don't go back. Don't, don't let it entice you back to law-keeping. Now you say, that sounds bad. Does that mean... That we don't have to do anything right. We don't have to keep... No, it doesn't mean we don't have to do the right thing. But we can't do it. I'm going to say this again. We can't do it by trying to do it. There is another path. And that's what Paul's going to go on to say. There is another way. Christians are people who do the right thing. They do fulfill the law. And that's where we were at. That's where we were last week. When we get to the beginning of Romans chapter 8. How is it going to happen? Right? We know the passage is tremendous because he starts with the justification. We have, a, we have a relationship with God because of justification. Therefore, being justified by faith. What's it say? Or no, excuse me. Um, let me get the passage here because I'm getting the wrong one. Then. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the justification part. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's already said this in chapter 7 when he was talking about the dying to the law and being alive to Christ. He says, so that it's possible now for us to serve in the newness of the Spirit instead of in the letter of the law, in the oldness of the, of the letter. Because now we have a capacity. Because at the same time that we were born again, the Spirit of God came into our experience. And it is the Spirit of God which will set you free in your experience. So that now what do I do? I don't walk in the, according to the law, I am going to walk in the Spirit of God. 
Now that becomes a little hard to we can go down through here, we walk in the spirit. What what does that mean? Interestingly enough, Paul does not describe it to us. I could read through this and you would see that. But he doesn't say what this all means. He just tells you what the outworking of it is. But he says that the man is going to walk in the spirit. And remember that walk has it has to do with your whole life. All right, it has to do with everything. It has to do with the beginning to the end. All right, so everything has to do in the Spirit. And what will that mean? See, one of the things about having a... I think people prefer law because there's something in flesh that wants to stay as far away from God as it can. Flesh prefers law. Because if the one thing flesh doesn't like, it does tell you that in, in Romans chapter 8, the flesh and spirit are at war with each other. In Galatians chapter 5, he says the same thing. They are at, they're at war over your body, if you would. They are at war over your soul. Your flesh wants to control it. The Spirit of God wants to control it. He pictures it in, in Galatians chapter 5 as a wrestling match, which the Spirit's going to win if you belong to Christ. But they are fighting for it. They are, they're arguing over this thing, and he's going to, they are, they're struggling for this supremacy there. But see, what God is calling us to do is to live with him. See, Jesus died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The Christian life can't be lived at a distance from God. You see, you, were, you died to sin, but you were made alive to God. Right? You're to present yourself, and again, that's a little hard to do at a distance, right? This isn't something we do in the wall. To, I mean, if I'm going to present myself to you as a, as a servant, I have to kind of be right in front of you. Right? It wouldn't be... It's not going to do any good for me to walk outside and say, I'll be your servant. Well, what good does that do? You come right face to face with God. See, sanctification brings you face to face with God. And he says that he's going to describe it here, this experience you're going to go through as being led by the Spirit. Now, that doesn't have to do with guidance. It's not talking about guidance there. He's talking about someone showing you the way walking with you because you're going to walk in the Spirit. Now, again, Paul doesn't fill it out here. But if we take all of Paul's teaching, what is he talking about? Let's start with this. The first thing he's talking about is the Spirit of God has to illumine us as to the truth of the Word of God. All right? So we're not just learning laws. We are letting the Spirit of God instruct us from the Word of God. So if we wanted to be sanctified today, a first question we could ask, we've asked several already, but let's say we're down here, we're asking questions. Were you in the Word of God today? Because the sword of the Spirit's the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Set them apart from this world by the truth of your Word. Do that for them. And who's going to do that? The Spirit of God's going to do it when you open it up and start to go. He's the teacher. He is the teacher. Did you trust Him for that? Do you trust Him for that? You can be in the Word of God a long time and never get around to that. I'm trusting. This is where the faith comes in. Lord, teach me. Open my eyes to it. Show me what's there. And that's why Paul, when he's praying for the Ephesian church, the first prayer he gives is this, that you would give to this church 
Lord, give to them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Open it up to them. Cause them to see it. Make it clear to them. Right? Make it clear to them. Because they have to see you. They have to see a person. And when you're in the Word of God, the Spirit of God wants to do that. Because it says, when, when the Lord told us what was going to happen when the Spirit of God came, He says this, He's going to lead you into knowledge all truth. Right? He's going to lead you into the knowledge of truth. That's in that upper room discourse. But He says something else. He will glorify me. He's going to make known my glory to you. He's going to make it known. He's going to glorify me because he's going to take the things which are mine and he's going to show it to you. What's the Spirit of God want to do in your life? He wants to glorify Jesus Christ to you. He wants, to see, he wants you to see him high and lifted up. Why does he want to do that? Because there is a second step of what the Spirit of God does. And that is the transforming work of the Spirit of God. In the later part of the book of, of Romans, Paul calls the, uh, calls the Roman believers, in light of the greatness of God, to present themselves as a living sacrifice. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. The important point we want to make note of tonight is, you can't transform your mind. All right? You can't renew it. Those are both passive things. Those are both speaking about something that someone is something that someone is doing to you. All right? You don't do it yourself. How is that transforming of the mind come to pass? How is it that we are changed? Well, as the Spirit of God puts the Lord Jesus Christ up in front of you, you will be changed. That's again the Got to go fast here, but in uh, in Corinthians, so let's see if I can get there. Second Corinthians, chapter three, Paul's in this well-known verse. He's speaking concerning this subject, and we have to go very quickly here. But it says in verse seventeen, this is chapter three, verse seventeen it says this: Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, or where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. There's liberty. And I want you to note, just do this on your own later on, in Romans, in Galatians, and in this passage, all three are talking about the freedom that comes when the Spirit of God's doing His work. The liberty that comes. All right? And here's what he says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory Justice from the Lord, the Spirit. Transform minds. Transform souls. Inward being. Being completely rebuilt. Present yourselves, he says, as a living sacrifice. And be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that's, that's inwardly changed so that it comes out. Because at the core, you've been changed. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do for us. He wants to change us at the core, not just change the outward appearance. Pharisees can do that. Law can do that. But the law can't get at my heart. And the Spirit of God can. And he's going to do it by presenting Jesus Christ to me. And as I look at what he shows me concerning who Jesus Christ is, he is going to cause the glory of that to begin to transform my soul into the image of the one that I'm looking at. 
Way better than law. Way better than law. Because now I'm different. We call John the apostle of love, right? Apostle of love. Let me tell you about John when he was a disciple. He and his brother James got irritated one day. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was looking for a place to stay. And some people were less than hospitable to him. They appreciated who Jesus was and they didn't like the way these people treated him. And here's what the apostle of love suggested. Let's call fire down on their heads. Burn them up. That's the apostle of love. Before he was transformed. And the Lord had to (laughs) rebuke him and say, you don't have a clue what spirit you are. I didn't come to destroy lives. I came to save them. Now, in that case, he's revealing to him who he is. And those two men were going to be changed. Not on the spot, not completely, because here's one of the features that you have to face in sanctification. When you came to Christ, when you entered in there, once you came and committed your life to Christ, in one sense, nothing changed in your mind. All right? Well, some things. You've, now you're committed to the Lord. But you didn't know any more scripture before. <laughs> it didn't like, whoo, Romans came in. No, Romans didn't come in. Nothing came in. If you didn't know it before, you don't know it now. All right? Now, you may have had things that you'd heard before and they came to life for you. I'm not going to argue with all that. But, but your value system didn't change immediately. It did not. Sometimes we look back and say, well, I changed it. No, I don't know. See, James didn't. James and John, they still wanted to. Now, that's not to say that James and John weren't followers of the Lord. And that they didn't want to, some way, meet him. Right? But they were mistaken on how it should happen. They were there for the glory of God. Right? They are there desiring that Jesus be honored as he ought to be honored. But they didn't understand how that was going to work out. That was going to take time as they saw who the Lord was. And they were presented with that. And they were transformed. The Spirit of God wants to do that for us. I am very grateful to the Lord that in the opening days of my spiritual experience, I was exposed to a number of godly, older saints who had been transformed. They were people from whom the glory of the Lord just seemed to exude. I told people about there was one lady particularly. I hated being with her. I, was, I wasn't converted yet. But every time I got around this woman, I wanted to confess sin. I just wanted to say, you know, I'm not what I ought to be. And she never said anything. She just, there, there, you know. Uh, she, she would slip in some shots every once in a while. All right. She, she had her. But they were always so polite. They were always so polite. She was the one I told about that came up to one day and said, Art, just always remember this, that the world's smallest package is a man. Wrapped up in himself. There, there, there you go. <laughs> you know, so, just on the side, you know, no, no shouting, no yelling. Just okay. <laughs> I got the point. You know, man wrapped up. Anyway, doesn't matter. I didn't know the Lord at the time, but I, I, I can, I can. That woman had been transformed, and it, because she had been transformed, 
she looked like the Lord way beyond anything that would be there because she had kept certain rules. Because what the Spirit of God wants to do is produce his fruit. Now, the process that that takes that takes place in all this, and this is important to us, all we have to do is walk with the Spirit of God. Isn't that wonderful? It's all you have to do to be sanctified. But that means you have to serve him because he's going to ask you to serve, okay? But you don't have to try to work out all the things that are wrong with you. Don't try that. It's, it's such an ugly picture. I'm telling you, if you start going in and, and hunting for your sin, not, it's not edifying. It takes you down. What do you do? You walk with the Spirit of God. You're reading the Word of God, and He'll show you the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He'll show you. You're not like that. You're not like that. Just like He showed, we can say that, He showed James and John, you're wrong in their spirit. You've got to change. I'm sure as they began to meditate over the years, it changed. You know, we know it changed because we've got John's writings when he was transformed. And that spirit's completely gone. But we don't have a record of it going because he just, okay, I'll, I'll do better on this. Because here's the wonderful part. As you respond to the things the Spirit of God says to you, he will convict you of sin. He'll come and say, you're a man wrapped up in yourself, Right? And you submit to the Spirit of God, something else takes place. He does a much more wonderful work. Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. He says that as I follow the Spirit of God, He produces fruit. And that fruit is way beyond anything that I could work out by doing the right thing. That doesn't mean, again, that you're not going to try to do the right thing. It doesn't mean the Spirit of God won't point you to say, hey, that's wrong. But when I respond to this, He produces Christ in us. He produces Christ in us in a way way beyond what imitating Christ would mean. And the outworking of that, finally, what is it? We become the servants of God. We come the, become those who, who look like the Lord. Because the last thing that's in there, even as he convicts us of sin, is this. That he is the one that strengthens. The first prayer in Ephesians is that God would open up their minds by the Spirit. The second was that God would strengthen them with might in the inner man by the Spirit of God. You walk with him, and you will find out that when he convicts, he also enables because he knows what work he's doing in you. He knows what he's trying to accomplish in your life. He can't do everything at once. He brings something before and he points at it. And he's working within you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. Along the lines that he is putting out there. All you have to do is respond. And the rest gets taken care of. Just as we have with regards to the confession of sin. If we confess what he points out to us, he says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we had to confess all of our sin, we would never get it done. But if we will respond, he will purify us and cleanse us. So what is the path of justification, or what's the path of sanctification? The path of sanctification is, first of all, counting on the fact that in Jesus Christ I've been set free. It is, secondly, presenting myself, the, 
the instruments of my, my life, my, my actual time that goes with that, to God as an instrument of righteousness. It is a refusal to buy the idea of going back to the old lawmaster who doesn't help me. It brings me to Christ. And then it, it is fulfilled as I walk in the Spirit, as I let the Spirit of God do His work through the Word, through the church. But He does that work. And if I will respond to Him, He will set me free. It is a great path. When did you come to that place? I wanted to say that at the very beginning. When you committed your life into His hands. He's not here to make us better in ornaments. He's here to make us instruments. And in this day, in this time, in these desperate times, we need instruments. We need people who belong to God, who are ready to do the will of God. That's why we meet here together, so that we can be prepared by God to do the will of God in the circumstances we're in. It's a path. It's a wonderful path that God has provided. It depends on Him. It depends on the work of Jesus at the cross. It depends on the work of the Spirit to make that real. We're going to trust Him for it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We give you thanks for the wonderful work you want to perform. We give you thanks for the freedom of the sons of God. Well, we're coming to you and asking you to do a powerful work among us. Father, this little group, Father, we're so insignificant in this world, but Father, we come to give you thanks for the one who is our life, the Lord himself. Father, enable us to embrace that truth. Father, coming and asking you to move in us that we will all be submitted to you. We're asking you to enable us to live with you day after day by the Spirit. And know what it is to be enlightened and transformed and empowered to serve you all of our lives. We come and trust you for that. And we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.